Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of medical experimentation, slavery, and the deaths of children. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Prior to 2018, if you walked down a particular brick path in New York City's Central Park, you'd come across an imposing bronze statue. For nearly 85 years, the figure stood on its pedestal next to the New York Academy of Medicine, looking down upon locals and tourists alike. Many stopped to read the inscription carved into its granite platform. J. Marion Sims, M.D. It also listed his achievements. Surgeon, philanthropist, founder of the Women's Hospital in the state of New York. But nowhere on that statue did it list Sims' other roles. Malpractitioner, enslaver, and torturer. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill, We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm here to assist Alastair with some medical insight into our first installment of the case of Dr. James Marion Sims, at one point thought to be the father of gynecology, whose investigation of a common neonatal illness in the 1800s may have done more harm than good. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on Dr. James, or J. Marion Sims, a surgeon and megalomaniac from 1840s Alabama who, until recently, was considered the father of gynecology. This time, we'll cover the rise of Sims' career and the extreme lengths he went to to solidify his legacy. Next time, we'll explore how Sims was celebrated for over a century until his dark truths were finally unearthed. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. 
Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Awaken your senses with a curiously refreshing Hendrix Cucumber Lemonade. Curious how? Cue the aroma. Marvelous. Cue the taste. Magnificent. Cue the cucumber. That's the refreshing secret. Hendrix is uncommonly crafted with cucumbers, roses, artistry, and imagination. Other gins are ordinary, but Hendrix is refreshingly curious. Discover Hendrix Gin cocktail recipes at HendrixGin.com. Please drink the unusual responsibly. Hendrix Gin, 44% alcohol by volume. Bottled and imported by William Grant & Sons, New York, New York. Copyright 2024. In 1835, 22-year-old Dr. J. Marion Sims set off for a house call. He was on his way to see his very first patient, who was unique for a couple of reasons. Not only was it the son of a prominent former mayor, but he was just barely 18 months old. Sims had recently returned to his hometown of Lancaster, South Carolina, where he opened up his first practice. He felt if he could successfully treat the child, word would spread, and it would be good for business. On the other hand, doing a poor job could tarnish his reputation, which wasn't ideal considering Sims had always dreamed of becoming a celebrated doctor. Still, it was a risk he needed to take. He had to face his first patient eventually. Sims took a deep breath and entered the home. Inside, he found the child emaciated and suffering from chronic diarrhea. As he examined the boy closer, he saw his gums were severely swollen. Luckily, Sims knew what to do. He retrieved a knife from his medical kit, then ever so gently cut into the child's gums to reduce the inflammation. But when it came to prescribing him with medication, Sims was at a loss. While he could provide a quick treatment for the gums, he had no idea what was ailing the rest of the boy's body. Dr. Sims didn't have the tools or techniques we use today, so I can see why diagnosing this child might have proven difficult in the 1800s. This boy could have been suffering from a number of conditions. It's hard to say with our limited information. He might have had a metabolic disorder or possibly a bacterial, viral, or parasitic infection. It may have even been a systemic illness like an inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's. Because the mouth is the anatomic gateway to our intestinal tract, any inflammation from below can create secondary oral issues like gum disease, which could account for his swollen gums. Again, not having examined him myself, I'm only speculating. I will say with certainty that we're lucky today's doctors go through rigorous training before treating their first patients. But in Sims' day, medical training only required a short internship and about 30 weeks of coursework over two years. Neither of those had prepared him properly for this case or the challenges ahead. Still, he put on a brave face and assured the former mayor he'd get to the bottom of his son's condition. He returned to his home office and cracked open the books. But even after re-examining his medical texts, he couldn't find a chapter that offered a concrete solution. So he got creative, taking different treatments from different chapters. Day after day, Sims returned to see the boy trying all kinds of remedies, but nothing seemed to work. The child grew sicker. 
until one fateful night, he finally passed away. Sims was mortified. Not only was he unable to cure his first patient, he was unable to save the life of a child, the former mayor's child. News about Sims' failure spread about town, but surprisingly, the death didn't completely ruin his reputation. Two weeks later, Sims was summoned to the home of another toddler suffering from the same symptoms. The child's father hoped he'd have better luck with this patient than his last. Sims made him a promise, saying, If I don't, I'll quit the town. Determined, Sims hit the books once more. This time, he started with the final chapters and worked his way backward in hopes of coming across something he hadn't seen before. Sims returned every day trying treatment after treatment, but the results were the same. Sims lost his second patient. Losing two patients back to back, especially so early on in your career, would be hard for any doctor. It's tough to say how Sims was feeling during this time, especially given what we know about him now. He must have been very ashamed considering the failure to live up to his word and given how concerned he was over building a stellar reputation. Most doctors would have been feeling grief, helplessness, and sadness for the family. You never forget the first death under your care, and it's often one of the most traumatic and humbling experiences for a doctor. Now, with two deaths on his hands, Sims felt his career was over. At least, in Lancaster. He took the sign hanging outside his practice and threw it into a well. As promised, Sims and his wife packed their bags and left town. They traveled by wagon through the south, eventually coming to Mount Meigs, Alabama. There, Sims continued his training under two doctors, taking more time to hone and perfect his craft before applying it on other patients. Then, one afternoon, while his mentor was away, Sims was called to examine an enslaver who'd been complaining of severe stomach pains. Sims found what he thought to be a collection of pus in the man's abdomen and knew if he didn't remove it, he would soon die. Sims took a risk, working swiftly to operate and remove the material. After a few days of recovery, the man survived. Sims' first operation had been a successful one. Perhaps he knew from then on, surgery would be his area of expertise. For the next several years, Sims worked on plantations as a resident physician, performing operations on enslavers and the enslaved alike. He corrected things like clubbed feet, cleft palates, and crossed eyes. And he had plenty of patients to see. Like much of the South at the time, Alabama ran on enslaved labor. It was common for an Alabama family to have at least five enslaved people who, at the time, made up about 43% of the state's population. The white enslavers were motivated to keep their laborers healthy so they could keep working and reproduce. The transatlantic slave trade had become illegal decades ago, meaning, at least in theory, African people could no longer be forcibly taken to the US against their will, which put the current enslaved people in higher demand. Sims believed with these patients he could get away with a lot more trial and error. And if he was going to be a famous doctor one day, he had to push the boundaries somewhere. 
So, in 1840, the 27-year-old Sims decided to settle down and open his own practice in Montgomery, Alabama, a bustling hub in the center of this action. Sims quickly became the go-to doctor for enslaved women and their babies. Eventually, his business got so popular, he turned parts of his own home into a hospital. But his black patients were relegated to the 16 dilapidated beds he kept in the backyard. In 1845, one of those beds held a 17-year-old girl named Anaka. Anaka's enslaver asked Sims to see her just days after she'd given birth. Sims himself had delivered the baby using forceps, but he had little experience with the tool. Ever since the negligent delivery, Anaka had been unable to control her bladder. When Sims took a closer look, he found damaged tissue within her vagina. After researching Anaka's symptoms, Dr. Sims found she was suffering from something called vesicovaginal fistula, a tear between the bladder and the vagina resulting in severe pain and incontinence. Also known as a VVF, the condition was common amongst enslaved women who often weren't given the proper prenatal care. In Anaka's case, Dr. Sims' inability to use forceps properly may have been the direct cause. But he likely didn't consider that at the time. The condition was also incurable, so Sims told Anaka's enslaver there was nothing he could do to help and sent her on her way. Later, Dr. Sims was called to assist two more enslaved women for the same condition. Their names were Betsy and Lucy. As with Anaka, their condition caused them pain and discomfort, but their enslavers were only concerned with their ability to work. Still, without any solutions, Dr. Sims sent Betsy and Lucy off as well. Besides the fact that there wasn't a cure for VVFs, treating any gynecological ailment at the time was often considered taboo. At this point in US history, all doctors were men, and many were uncomfortable examining women, enslaved or not, for an ailment in or around the pelvis. But Dr. Sims felt differently. After all, he was willing to try anything that could propel his fame. Shortly after meeting Betsy and Lucy, Sims responded to a house call for a woman who'd fallen off a horse and injured her pelvis. He suspected the woman's uterus had shifted as a result of her fall, so he did something he'd learned from an old teacher. By Sims' own account, he instructed her to go on all fours and tried using his fingers to reposition the uterus. Sims' techniques seemed to bring relief to the patient, and his success gave him a thought. Perhaps he could use this positioning, despite how dehumanizing it was, to examine VVFs, and possibly find a treatment for them. It wouldn't be that easy. It required a lot of trial and error. But Sims didn't seem to have a problem with that. He knew exactly where he could obtain patients to experiment on, he contacted the enslavers of Anaka, Lucy, and Betsy. He explained his intentions, also offering to house and feed the women while they were under his roof. Once the enslavers agreed, the three women were handed over to Sims. And the next phase of his plan was ready to unfold.
coming up, Dr. Sim's ego overrides any bedside manner. They say time heals all wounds, but sometimes time can do anything but. Welcome to Cold Cases, the new Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Carter Roy. Every Monday, join me as I revisit the clues and miscues of some of the most elusive criminal cases in history. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases explores the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Will justice be served? Only time will tell. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now, back to the story. In 1845, Dr. J. Marion Sims believed he could find a cure for a painful condition known as a vesicovaginal fistula, or VVF, a pervasive ailment amongst enslaved women at the time. That year, he took over the enslavement of three women, who he used as experimental subjects. Sims planned to use sutures to close the VVFs, but in order to do so, he had to find a tool that could keep the vaginal canal open for some time. He racked his brain for any household item that could work and eventually locked in on a pewter soup spoon. He bent the utensil in half and tried using it as a medical tool on Betsy. This became one of the earliest prototypes of a speculum. The invention of the speculum was a game-changer in the evolution of our modern gynecology. The tool expands the vaginal opening, allowing for an internal view of the cervix. At the time, it offered an unprecedented view, which brought new understandings of various conditions. The version that's used today is actually based on Sim's earlier model. With a completely revised vision for approaching VVFs, Sims was ready to work on patients. He decided that 18-year-old Lucy would be the first to go under his knife. While Sims claimed he received his patient's permission to operate, civil rights activist Viola Plummer and University of Alabama's Dr. Dorenda Ojanuga disagree. They've examined Sims' career carefully and argue, given the status of the patient's enslavement, the women couldn't have consented to Sims' experiments. Any indication of consent would have been invalid, seeing as they were often under coercion. 
which was why Lucy was wrongfully subjected to the long and painful procedure. Dr. Sims escorted Lucy into the operating room. There, 12 other doctors hovered around the table waiting to assist and observe. If Lucy wasn't scared already, she was likely horrified by now. Sims instructed her to undress and get on the table. As the audience looked on, Dr. Sims began operating on Lucy without anesthesia. Anesthesia is very important. Without it, Lucy probably would have been feeling every cut and suture. Anesthesia is a cocktail of medications that puts someone into a deep sleep while it simultaneously blocks nerve signaling throughout the body and brain. These effects keep a patient unconscious, free of pain, and also motionless, which is of great benefit for the surgeons and their operating team. Without anesthesia, Lucy's pain would have been unbearable, and she'd be suffering immensely before possibly losing consciousness. A procedure without anesthesia can also be deadly, as the pain would skyrocket your heart rate and blood pressure, opening the door for heart attack, stroke, and bleeding complications. She definitely needed to be asleep for a medical experience like this. Instead, Lucy writhed in pain, which should have been enough to convince Dr. Sims to stop. But he did the opposite. He had her restrained. Sims was determined to complete the procedure no matter what the cost. Undoubtedly, he would have justified his actions based on the racist misconception that black people had a higher tolerance for pain. And so, he carried on, using his newly designed speculum as well as a sponge to absorb the blood and leaking urine. The operation lasted an agonizing hour. To Lucy, it probably felt endless. At first, Sim's operation appeared successful. He managed to stitch the VVF, and once he was done, he put Lucy on bed rest. But her torture wasn't over. Lucy soon displayed signs of blood poisoning, a ravenous infection that spread throughout her body. Evidently, Sims didn't consider that using a sponge in this way might expose her to dangerous bacteria. Lucy likely had an arduous recovery. Blood poisoning, also called septicemia, is an infection that allows germs to enter and spread within the bloodstream. These germs are typically bacteria, but can also be fungi or viruses. Symptoms of septicemia include fever, chills, sweating, and weakness, along with a drastic drop in blood pressure. While this condition sounds a lot like sepsis, septicemia is the infection itself while sepsis is the body's potentially deadly immune reaction to it. Given this, septicemia can be fatal if left untreated because it can cause someone to become septic. Lucy's condition likely resulted from Sims using an unsanitary sponge or even the scenario in which he left portions of it within her body. Given the era, he may not have even been aware he made a mistake. He did, however, see how much Lucy had suffered. At one point, he believed she was going to die. While Lucy recovered after three months, Sim's procedure still proved to be a total failure. 
While Lucy did survive the blood poisoning, her VVF remained. Sims was baffled by the results, unsure of where he went wrong, which only heightened his determination. Since Lucy had survived, he felt there was no reason not to try again. Sims actively sought out other enslaved women with the same condition, and he likely made the same deal to their enslavers as he had with the initial three. Soon, he had taken over the enslavement of at least seven more women. Unfortunately, most of their names have been lost to history. We aren't sure what exact methods he tried on them or if other doctors observed those procedures. But we do know that Sims carried on with his surgeries for the next few months, and he never used anesthesia. However, he did administer opium post-operation. Sims wrote that opium, quote, calms the nerves, inspires hope, relieves the scalding of the urine. It also allowed the patient doomed to a fortnight's horizontal position to pass the time with pleasant dreams and delightful sensations instead of painful forebodings in intolerable sufferings. After surgery, Sims also gave the women just enough food and water to keep them alive. It's unclear if he had a medical reason for this, but chances are, he just placed little value in their long-term well-being. Dr. Sims' use of opium isn't totally unsubstantiated, but all in all, his post-operative care is pretty horrendous. Given the condition of these women, the opium would have had a more intensified effect. Because they were coming off major stressful surgeries without anesthesia, the euphoric and analgesic effects would have likely been welcomed. However, their malnourishment and dehydration put these women into a vulnerable state in relation to the opium, as their blood pressure, heart rate, and respiration would all be very low. There was also the risk of these women developing addictions. It's quite possible Sims only wanted to use opium to make sure his patients appeared to be recovering well, all with the aim of looking like a hero. If that was the case, then Sims' plan backfired. Not only were the women left malnourished, their VVFs continued to cause them pain and discomfort for many years. Tragically, some of Sims' patients inevitably died as a result of his unproven experiments. But to Sims, each death was just a bump on the road to glory, especially since he never had to worry about a lack of test subjects. By now, he was well-known in Montgomery, so when one patient died, enslavers were happy to bring him another. Although knowing he never had much success, it's hard to say exactly how Sims became so famous. Through a modern lens, it's possible other doctors held similar dehumanizing views towards enslaved people. Perhaps they weren't bothered by Sims' deplorable methods. Maybe they were happy to let him take the risks, especially if it meant they could ride his coattails later. There's no way to say for sure. Sims mostly writes about the endless praise he received in his autobiography. Hardly ever does he pen a humbling word, but it does seem like he faced little to no consequences when he made mistakes. Instead, he appeared to publish what he wanted, whenever he wanted. During this time period, medical testing and peer review practices weren't what they are today. 
Getting published is now a multi-step process that requires patience and a lot of meticulous work. Once a manuscript is submitted and accepted by a journal, editors select two to three experts in the relevant fields to review it. Then, after resubmission by the author, the editorial board evaluates the suitability of the manuscript for publication, rejection, or a second round of reviews. Standards were certainly lower in the 1800s. So, in Montgomery, Sims had solidified his spot as top doctor. But small-town fame wasn't enough for him. He wanted to change the world. And if you think you've heard all the lengths he was willing to go to, well, unfortunately, there's more. Because Sims' evil reached unfathomable depths. Coming up, Dr. Sims' dark past. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, back to the story. The timeline of Dr. J. Marion Sims' story is sometimes murky, so it's hard to know exactly when he got involved with certain practices. But we do know that by 1845, Sims was experimenting on enslaved women in the hopes of finding a cure for vesicovaginal fistulas. But sometime prior to these experimental surgeries, an enslaver came to Dr. J. Marion Sims with a concern about one of the infants on his property. The man described the child's stiff body, especially in the neck and jaw. Dr. Sims was familiar with the symptoms and told the man he believed it was Trismus nascentium, which is now known as neonatal tetanus. Unfortunately, at the time, there was no cure. But Sims resolved to find one. Neonatal tetanus is a form of tetanus that applies to newborns suffering from the infection between the first 3 to 28 days of life. It's incredibly dangerous and possibly lethal, and newborns with mothers lacking proper tetanus immunity are at a higher risk. The condition occurs when unsanitary instruments are used to cut the umbilical cord or when the umbilical stump touches a non-sterile surface. Symptoms include muscular rigidity, body spasming, and difficulty breathing. The baby also stops feeding due to swallowing trouble and their inability to suckle. Neonatal tetanus is no longer as common, and it's very rare in the United States. However, in developing countries with less resources and treatment access, it's still a problem. 
In his memoir, Sims wrote, I can do the child no good, but as a study, I will come out to see it and investigate the case. Which was odd for Sims to say, considering that he did have some experience with the condition already. Several years earlier, Sims' own infant daughter Eliza suffered from what appeared to be neonatal tetanus. He didn't know how to treat her, but when his wife laid Eliza on her side, her spasms gradually decreased and seemed to be gone within hours. While not a foolproof method, laying a child on their side could relieve some symptoms of neonatal tetanus, like apnea. Laying on your side can help open your airways slightly, improve oxygen intake, and optimize blood flow. One has to wonder why Dr. Sims didn't immediately think to treat the enslaved child like he treated Eliza, especially since he was desperate and so determined to be seen as a revolutionary thinker in his field. Sims may have assumed this baby's case was more severe than his daughter's and harder to cure. If that was the case, he would have been right. Because when Sims returned to check on the child in the following days, it was already nearing death. But that didn't stop him from examining the patient and taking detailed notes. Recalling the incident in his autobiography, Sims said the child had been, quote, in spasms for two days and nights, touching it would throw it into convulsions. It could not swallow, could take no nourishment. The whole body was rigid. Within days, the baby passed away. Sadly, like many aspects of this story, we don't know anything about the child's mother or whether the family had an opportunity to mourn. We do know that Sims promptly got permission to perform an autopsy. He found that the child had a spinal cord hemorrhage that he believed put excessive pressure on the brain. After seeing this, he was certain he discovered the cause of neonatal tetanus. Central nervous system hemorrhaging is often linked to neonatal tetanus, but it's not the cause. Rather, it's a complication of the disease that can lead to death. When a baby's spasming so violently, muscles can tear and bones can break, particularly in the spine, which can cause trauma and bleeding in the spinal cord. Other potentially lethal complications linked to neonatal tetanus include pneumonia, pulmonary hemorrhage, and even septicemia, usually from the original infection at the umbilical stump. Sims probably believes CNS hemorrhaging was the answer, because he'd seen or heard of it before. The scientific method welcomes varied hypotheses, but many don't hold water. Likewise, this would be the fate of Sims' theory. But initially, Sims didn't realize he was wrong. Instead, he published his findings in the American Journal of the Medical Sciences, one of the most prestigious reports of the time. The publication led others to believe Sims was an expert on the topic, Soon, more enslavers were bringing him infants with neonatal tetanus. Just as he did with the women he depressed, Sims obtained temporary enslavement over the children he experimented on. And his methods were horrific. So horrific, we've chosen not to go into detail about them on our show. But we can tell you that many of them died 
In Dr. Sim's mind, the deaths were never his fault, no matter how merciless his tactics. Instead, he made repugnant comments, blaming them on what he described as the enslaved mother's, quote, ignorance in birthing and treating the children. But he didn't seem to cast the same blame on any white mothers whose babies had the condition. And he never even attempted to try out his quack medications and experiments on them. He knew that if a white child died under his care, his career would be over in an instant. It's important for us to consider the discrimination at play here and recognize that Dr. Sim's actions have had a lasting influence on modern-day medicine. As in many other institutions, racism often represents an ugly foundational element from a less enlightened era. However, it can't be swept under the rug. It's the medical community's job to analyze and reflect on how poison like this came to be in our field and to do everything in our power to prevent it from spreading. This is actually something that so obviously harkens back to our Hippocratic Oath, and in the vein of do no harm, what can be worse than a system that advocates for one life over another? If someone came to me with the conviction that their provider was being racist or prejudiced towards them, I'd advise them to seek treatment elsewhere. Depending on the severity of the allegations, it may even be necessary to report the offending physician to their state medical board. Ultimately, the doctor-patient relationship is based on trust, and there's no way someone could feel confident in their care without it. Fortunately, though, there are steps being taken to combat this unsavory part of the medical field. A couple examples are a greater emphasis on diversity in hospital hiring practices and providing medical employees with racial sensitivity training. It's always our job to recognize mistakes of the past so we can affect meaningful change. Eventually, some of Sim's peers came to recognize the prejudices he had and how they affected his work. They began casting doubt on his experiments, especially when they yielded no positive results. Those who originally thought Sims was on the brink of a medical breakthrough now watched as his death toll grew. When Sims looked into his patient's sobbing eyes, he didn't see pain. All he saw was his own legacy, which he hoped their suffering would bear. By the end of 1846, the colleagues who'd been assisting Sims finally began to express their concerns. Many of them refused to help Sims any longer. Now on his own, Sims likely saw a crossroads unfold before him. Medical professionals were losing faith in him. He could quit. But if he prevailed and was successful, he believed he'd be a hero. And he wasn't about to pass up that chance. Now all he needed was an assistant, someone to help him continue his journey. He decided, who better than the subjects themselves? Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much, Alistair. 
You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Brandon Rizzuto, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Laurie Gottlieb, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Chelsea Wood, and produced by Joshua Kern. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. 